0: Isn't it great to have the prop of the empty tomb still? We just just couldn't get rid of that after one week. So uh, it's only going to be here probably for one more week. We'll see it again in future years. But um, man, it's so fitting even for this morning's text and kind of where where we're headed. Um, And uh, so Acts chapter 7 is where I want you to open your Bibles to. If you don't have a handout... Uh, raise your hand, and someone will get it to you. Um, actually, there's no one in the back. No one's going to get it. You have to help yourself. Uh, they're on the back, or they're um, borrow off your neighbor. This is Ebenezer Baptist Church, and I was there several years ago with my son Ethan, and I just sat in a back pew by myself, and there was a sense that you could feel the history that took place in this church. Uh, Simply referred to as the struggle, uh, this is the epicenter of the civil rights movement where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. served as a pastor. And sitting in the spot where so much had taken place, think about the hurt that boiled over into hate and all the strategy and prayer and desperation and marches and funerals that took place right on this sort of unassuming city block. What's more powerful about being there is that while you're sitting in there, um, you actually hear the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preaching. They have his sermons playing over a speaker inside of the church building. So as you're sitting there, you're hearing words that he said in his own voice. And when you think about his words on the other side of his sacrifice, they carry a certain weight to it. He died for what he believed in, but furthermore, he was actually killed because of what he believed in. I start with Atlanta, Georgia, and Ebenezer Baptist Church, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because of this. Today, in a single chapter of the Bible, what we have is uh, in some ways a parallel kind of experience. Um, The Bible provides a similar snapshot of a person giving a speech and then being killed for his beliefs. Stephen is the first martyr that we know of for Jesus. I'm going to give you a few definitions today. A martyr is a person who is killed for their belief. So we're going to use the term martyr here, and Stephen is the first recorded Christian martyr, a person killed for his belief. Now we don't have the place this took, where, where this happened exactly, but we do have the words of Stephen, not in his own voice, but recorded for us in Scripture. What happens in Acts chapter 7 is this, catch this, in 53 verses, that's a long chapter, in 53 verses, Stephen covers 2,000 years of Hebrew history. He spans 2,000 years, and he reveals one unifying theme, that Jesus, who was and who is and who is to come, is the unifying theme that goes all through those 2,000 years of history. He is the central figure of the story that God is authoring. That's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 7. Now, Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke is who wrote the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's the same gospel writer. This is, in essence, his sequel. Dr. Luke introduces Stephen in chapter 6. Garia preached on it two weeks ago. Remember that Stephen was one of the deacons, one of the servants that was raised up to solve a dispute. Did you know that as families grow and as churches grow and as time marches on, families fight? Did you know that? Newsflash. Knowing smiles and nods, right? It's true in your family. It's true in the church. All you need to do is just let time pass and there will be little squabbles and squibbles that come up. Here's what the argument had to do within the church. See if this sounds familiar to your family. It had to do with food and fairness. Anyone ever fight in their family about food or fairness? We do almost on a daily basis. Food and fairness are common themes for family fights. Now here's what's amazing. How was it resolved in Acts chapter 6? It wasn't resolved by ignoring the issues. It wasn't resolved by just saying deal with it or grow up or getting angry. Here's how it was solved. It was solved by godly men of character serving. Godly men of character were appointed, nominated, and they got in and they served. We don't know that they had any special skill at this other than they were full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's one of those guys. Here's what's incredibly powerful. Serving tables is not the main thing that history will remember Stephen for. It's there in Acts chapter 6, but what we remember Stephen for is not that he served tables, because that wasn't uh, his only role, and it probably wasn't even his main role. He was called to boldly open his mouth for Jesus, which he did. And when he did so, it caused quite a stir, which we'll see in Acts chapter 7, and it cost him his life, just like his Savior. So we're going to see this pattern of Jesus now mimicked in his followers. The series that we're in is studying through the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts, remember, is the birth and life of the church. The church is not a building. The church is followers of Jesus Christ. So this is looking at the early followers of Jesus Christ. And church activate reminds us That this idea of the faith that Jesus left us with is not a set of ideas. It is not a philosophy to subscribe to. The faith Jesus left us with is a lifestyle. It is a walk. It is something we do, not just think about. It's not just for the life of the mind. Christianity is to be acted upon. In fact, this book is called the Acts of the Apostles. That's the full name in your Bible. We shorten it to the Acts. Notice it's not the ideas of the apostles. It's not the looks of the apostles. Who cares what they looked about, looked like? It's not the philosophy of the apostles. It is the Acts of the apostles. Really telling for us as Christians. Stephen is a shining example of what this looks like let me give you the central truth this is this is for all my people who like struggle to like pay attention for a full-length sermon I get it our attention span is shrinking every study says that's true mine is as well here's the central truth here's the whole sermon in one sentence here it is write this down make history with God not against him Make history with God, not against him. Every day you live, you are a part of history. You are making history right now. The book of Acts chapter 7 is going to show this sort of continental divide
1: in history. With God, against God. So here's how, here's how we're, I'm going to break down the morning. And it's in your notes if you want to follow along this way but
0: why do we get the whole, uh, this whole speech that recounts so much history? Why is that, why is that in here? We're going to kind of break that down. Uh, what can we learn from Stephen the martyr? He's an inspiring figure. What can we learn? And then how does it help me with making history? So we're making history as a church in this neighborhood. We're making uh, history as individuals, as a part of God's story. So let me ask this first question, um, why the history speech? Well, first you go to the context. So you always read scripture in context. So I want you to look right now at Acts chapter seven, verse one. And verse one sets up everything, everything else that follows. Uh, it says this, and this clues us in to why Dr. Luke records this lengthy history speech right here in Acts chapter seven. Follow along. It simply says, and the high priest said, are these things so? Verse 2, and Stephen said, then he goes on to his speech. So looking at that, we would say, well, what things is he talking about? Are these things so, Stephen? What things? You look back at chapter 6. Chapter 6, I'm not going to walk through it, but let let me just sort of skim the overview. Stephen is boldly preaching sound doctrine for Jesus, and it's accompanied by miraculous signs. So in other words, it's undeniable what's going on here. Religious people hate that. They hate the gospel. They hate that they have to humble themselves and allow God to do it all. So they begin to argue with him, but they can't stand up to Stephen's wisdom. Remember that? That was from two weeks ago. So what do they do? They resort to trickery, name-calling, and accusation. Here's an interesting thing. We're going to look at a progressive view of history, that ancients are... uh, There's always sort of a modern... um, Uh, bent toward looking at people from from olden times as really simple, and we're so much more advanced than them. Catch this. When you can't stand up to the logic or reasoning or wisdom of someone, people sometimes resort to false accusation, trickery, and name-calling. Are we any further along, people, in history? We just aren't. We're we're getting back in. It feels like we're always in an election cycle. We're back into sort of getting to election cycle and thinking of our next president, all this stuff. We just haven't progressed as much as some would think so. So here's the crux of it. Their accusation centers on two things. This man, Stephen, never stops blaspheming the temple and the law the holy place of worship, and the holy words of God. Notice this, all through Acts 7, Moses and the law are somewhat interchangeable. Why? Because Moses received the law from God. Remember that? Ten Commandments, kind of famous. Okay, So Moses and the law are somewhat interchangeable. The main accusation against Stephen, what he is doing here is he's fielding accusations. This man blasphemes against the temple, and against the law. Here's our second definition. We already defined martyr. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is being irreverent about sacred matters.
1: Blasphemy is simply being irreverent about sacred matters. You can say blasphemous things.
0: That's why taking God's name in vain is a very serious offense.
1: But you can also do blasphemous things. So, what is Stephen doing with this big speech? Quite simply,
0: he is answering the charges against him with facts, number one, and he is confronting sinners with the truth. I'm going to break this down. These are on your screen if you want to fill in your blank. So number one, Stephen is answering the charges against him with facts. Remember, he's being accused as a blasphemer. What is he irreverently speaking or doing against? The law, the word of God, and the temple, the dwelling place of God. Here's what's curious, is in an answer to this as he stands up to field these charges. The high priest says, are these things so? He stands up and the speech, all through the speech, I'm not going to take time to read the entire thing this morning in service. But all through the speech, Stephen speaks very reverently and highly of
1: God, Moses, and the temple. Catch this using the Bible as authoritative.
0: So in his answer, he is actually demonstrating that he is not blaspheming God, the Bible, or the temple. In fact, the very fact that he uses so much Bible shows this. He doesn't just speak reverently of the Bible, he acts reverently towards Scripture by using it as his authority and basis for his defense. Church, let me say one thing. Many, many, many people like having a Bible near them, they like holding on to a Bible, they like speaking highly of the Bible. They might wear a cross, they might have Bible verses on their wall, but they don't actually use the Bible. They don't think of the Bible as authoritative. There's a difference there. And Stephen, actually by his actions, are showing far from speaking blasphemous against God's word, I'm using it reverently and authoritatively to answer your charges. Now, sort of an overview of what he covers in 53 verses and 2,000 years of Hebrew history, he is overviewing God's relationship with the Jews. He begins with Abraham in Genesis, and he ends with the prophets. If you're holding a physical Bible, find Genesis and end with Malachi. That's two thirds of your Bible. He spans the entire Old Testament. Charles Swindoll gives us this chart that I'm going to show you in a second, and what it does is it sort of breaks down the content of Stephen's speech. I'm not smart enough to just read Acts 7 and sort of see this. I love people who help me with this and sort of see this. You don't, we're not going to go through each of these. You can take a screenshot if you want of this, but all this is showing you is that in these different verses of his speech... He is, walking, he is systematically walking through Jewish history. Recounting all of God's activity in the people of God. He is leaning on the biblically recorded historical facts. He talks about getting commandments from God. Leading people out of Egyptian slavery, etc. Here's what I want you to note from this chart. You don't need to know all the details, but notice how gospel-saturated the history is. Here's what I mean by that. The good news, the gospel, the thing we celebrate and sing is this. It's not what we do for God. It's what God has already done for us. Who's doing the doing in this, in this chart? It's God. This isn't man's activity to please God in Acts 7. This is God's activity to help Helpless mankind in this. So God protects. God frees. God tests. God instructs and conquers and gives. God meets. God blesses. God communicates. This is the history of the world. This is God at work in human history. It grew from choosing a single man into a family, into a nation. And what is going on in current day Acts chapter 7, Stephen's day, is the worldwide expansion of God's plan. After the empty tomb, after the ascension, that's where we are with Stephen. Now the the history explodes into the whole world. And here's what God is doing. A brand new family made up of all the nations. Part of the struggle we're going to see in Acts is people hate change. People have a limited sort of view, and they're like, okay, I have made sense of my world. It's that God is for Jewish people. Got it. We're set apart. We're sacred. We've got signs and feasts and, and genealogies to prove it. And then God's going to come along, and he's going to do in some pretty spectacular ways. He's going to sort of blow their minds and sort of expand their minds to say, no, no, no it's never been just about one nation. I started with a single individual. I turned it into a family, I turned it into a big family, into a nation. Now it's for it's a family made up of all the nations of the earth. Go back and read the covenant he made with Abraham. It's all there. This was God's plan from the beginning. Here's one more thing to note. You ever wonder how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together? How do we know they're linked? This is a passage. This is a chapter that shows profoundly at this moment in world history, Stephen is forever linking the Old Testament story with the New Testament. He's living, making history in the New Testament right now. He's about to give a speech and be killed for it. And what he's going to do is he is linking the history, same author, same story, New Covenant, because of Jesus Christ. So he's forever linking the Old Testament and the New Testament here in this passage. So, number 1, Stephen is answering charges against him with facts. Number 2, Stephen is confronting sinners with the truth. I have a hunch he wouldn't have been killed
1: if he just left it at the answering the charges with facts. But Stephen turns it up a notch because he confronts sinners with the truth.
0: The people that Stephen is addressing is the same unjust counsel that just put Jesus to
1: death. Same people. Everyone around and witnessing and alive has all just witnessed this. Jesus is now ascended.
0: His followers are carrying on his life by his Power. Remember the accusation. The crux of the accusation are you're speaking blasphemy against the law and the temple. Let me just highlight a couple of places in the speech where he touches on the law. Okay. His speech reminded them that the scriptures that taught of a Messiah like Moses who would come. Look down at verse 37. So Acts chapter 7, verse 37. He says this, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Stephen doesn't blaspheme Moses or the law. Instead, Stephen is using the Bible to expose and reject the religion of Mosesism, lawism. They've taken Moses and the law and sort of set it up as an idol. And he's exposing that. How about the temple? Stephen's speech also reminded them of what the scriptures taught about the dwelling place of God. Remember, they said this guy is speaking, he never stops speaking evil, blasphemy, against the temple. Huge, serious offense. In verses 44 to 50, Stephen is tracking the progression of God's dwelling with his people from a portable tent to a permanent temple building that David wanted to build, but then his son Solomon built. That's verses 44 to 50. Look at verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And he goes on to quote the prophet. Key idea is this. Stephen is presenting facts. The facts are, I, Stephen, exalt the Bible by using it to filter and interpret history. I exalt the God who dwells uh, temporarily in these temporary dwelling places, but now in us because the promised Messiah has come. Stephen is at a critical point in history, much like we can go to a place where history began to change. There were some seismic shifts that went on uh, in certain locations and speeches around, around the globe that we could go to. And that's what's happening right here with Stephen. Here's one more thing I want you to notice, that if you were to read this speech just straight through, especially if you read it out loud, you would hear sort of a boom, sort of this drumbeat of this. He says over and over and over, starting at the beginning of his speech, he says, our father, our fathers, not capital F, not talking about God, but our forefathers, our, Stephen's a Jew. Stephen's including himself in this. In fact, nine times he says, our father or our fathers, including himself as a Jewish descendant. We are all a part of this history. We know this history. We rehearse this history. We talk about it. We celebrate it. We feast about it. We tell the stories. Now having shown the unbelief and disobedience of their forefather, catch this, Stephen changes the language from our fathers, our forefathers, to your fathers. Look at verse 51. The accusers stand accused. Verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You can't handle the truth. This is the moment in the courtroom drama where everything kind of explodes. Our father, our father, our fathers. And then he turns and he says, you, here's what he's showing. History reveals and history continues to reveal two kinds of people.
1: Those who believe and trust in God and those who disbelieve and don't trust in God. Those who believe in God are known because they obey God. Belief and obedience
0: goes together. We can say all day long that we believe, we believe, we believe, we trust, we trust, we trust. Our disobedience makes us liars. So those who believe and obey, those who don't believe and disobey. And what Stephen is doing is he's showing this. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, they believed and obeyed. Our history shows it. Joseph's brothers, the Israelites in the wilderness, they didn't believe and they disobeyed. History shows us that. His speech leads them to the present day, right now. You, counsel, who is trying me, you are not like the believing who obeyed, but like the prideful who disobeyed. That's why he turns the tables on them and all of a sudden points this accusing finger. His words condemned them as standing on the wrong side of history.
1: Now what happens with these words, bold and courageous, right? I mean, he knew what this was doing. He just
0: watched them kill Jesus. Stephen is a servant of Jesus. He's living out some of the things that Jesus said would happen. If they mistreat me, if they kill me, what do you think they're going to do to the servants? We're about to find out. What happens next in the text is sort of this blur of activity. Scripture is like a mirror. And instead of receiving the image being shown to them from the Scripture, you know what they do? They smash the mirror. You heard the phrase, kill the messenger? That's, I don't like this message this person is bringing. Let's just silence him. That's their their strategy. Verse 54, pick it up. I'm just going to read for a few verses here. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him.
1: Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Powerful that we just sang a song called, To Him Who is Seated on the
0: Throne. Seated on a throne gives two indications about Jesus. He's in his rightful place ruling. That's what kings do. They sit on a throne. But it also means his work is finished. Remember on the cross he said, It is finished. The work's been accomplished. Death could not hold him. Sin has no power. The work is done. You know what I do when chores are done? I sit
1: down. But Jesus is standing. Now, we don't know exactly why. It's an absolutely delicious
0: morsel that Dr. Luke provides us with under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It seems to be a welcome, doesn't it? Stephen, I'm right here With you, I'm going to show myself in a really powerful, profound way. Throughout history, I hope you read good biographies. Hope you read history. I'm a bit of a history nerd. I like it because we get to see the acts of God many, many times. People have reported right near the most intense struggle. It's like God peels back the veil and says, "Here, let me show you a peek of what's going on right now. Let me show you what's actually happening." And he gets to see that. You know what Stephen does? He's just a faithful witness. He just reports what he sees. He knows it's going to enrage them further. He doesn't take that into account. Hey, let me tell you what I'm seeing right now. wasn't for their ears. It's for ours. I think that bit recorded is for us to go, man, that is so inspirational. Now, it's, it's inspiring to see someone die for the truth. But more than just sort of a good inspirational story or feeling, let me get into a couple of lessons for us. What does Professor Stephen have to teach us? Let me highlight a couple of things first about God. What does it teach us about God? I want you to think, if if you go read this this afternoon, or just when church is over, and just read it straight through, how sovereign do you have to be? To orchestrate all of this history, all of these moving parts, to get to the place where Stephen is right now. I say, How sovereign do you have to be? It's sort of a weird way to say it. If you're sovereign, you're sovereign. You are or you aren't.
1: If you want to write a simple definition of sovereign, here's what it means total control. Total control. How sovereign does God have to be to orchestrate all of that history?
0: Let me tell you sort of an interesting phrase that's thrown around right now. Um, It's the whole idea of being on the right side of history. Have you heard this?
1: The right side of history. As I thought back and sort of just thought back in my mind when I first started hearing it, I think
0: I can track it to a specific point. But I would say this, it's primarily used by culture-shaping evangelists, of whom there are very many loud culture-shaping evangelists right now, and when they use the idea of being on the right side of, of, of history, they are trying to bully people or shame people about how they think to make sure they're thinking like they are thinking because they know somehow this future version of history and that they're on the right side. Now, here's a curious thing. I bet 10 people out of 10 people, if you walked out of here and polled them today on a Sunday afternoon, 10 out of 10 think they are on the right side of history. Let's up it. I think 100 out of 100 think they're on the right side of history. A thousand out of a thousand, probably. Who walks around going, nope, I'm on the wrong side? It means that you have convictions. It means that you think you know it's right. We're all trying to interpret But this idea of the right side of history is a really interesting idea. Let me just say this. History exists because God thought it up.
1: God made up history out of nothing. You and I exist here. A super bloom happening because of
0: all the great wet weather. Uh, The whales that you might go and see spouting in the ocean right now. A tiny little butterfly. The beautiful sunset that's going to happen. God thought it all up. It all came from his mind. And history spells something out. It is not just a random grouping of events. Let me show you a tiny little weird parallel. Here it is. Look at what's on the screen. I, as the creator of this image, have a message as well. It is really clear that I'm communicating something, and I'm going to reveal a part of what I'm trying to say with this image. Okay? You might have noticed that the seven colors of the rainbow are located on the screen. I'm so nerdy. I went to the actual number of values of the rainbow and made that and colored that in. I went home and told Becky, I'm like, there's a bit of a sickness in me. I'm not sure what it
1: is. This is the colors of the rainbow in order. And they spell something. What do they spell? History. Very good.
0: Now, it could be a jumble of words. You go, well, I can't prove that. Well, I just told you. They go in the order of the rainbow, and you can take my word for it, or you don't have to. There's a clear right way and a wrong way to look at this. That's also evident from the picture. And finally, a question is being posed implying personal response and personal responsibility. As in, are you on the right side of history? So that's what I'm going for with this image. You know that. Because I just told you. It came from my mind and it's sitting in front of you. Now, with that in mind, consider this phrase with me. Being on the right side of history implies some things. Number one is this it rests on the idea that there is absolute right and wrong. If you have a right side of history, by definition, you must have a wrong side of history, right? Here's what's curious. Many who are using this bully tactic to make sure you're on the right side of history
1: don't even believe in absolute right and wrong. Their worldview does not allow for it. In fact, it absolutely does not allow for it. The imprint of God and their own conscience is leaking out
0: in their ideas. Number two, it implies that history is actually going somewhere. And that the choices and events of people are not just random and reactionary. If you are a secular evolutionist, and I hate putting labels, but that kind of gives us a category. Not, not a, so Secular evolutionist meaning, uh, I don't believe in God or we're agnostic. We can't really know. Certainly not a God of, of design or involvement. If you're a secular evolutionist, who doesn't believe in God's existence, then you must hold to the random string of events to remain intellectually honest. Since it can't be proved that history is going somewhere, catch this, progressives take it by faith. So the very ones using this against people are holding it by faith. Now, progressives is a really interesting term. A progressive implies that I, as a progressive, am helping history
1: get somewhere. I am helping it to progress. Here's the questions underlying that. You're helping it make it better? Yes. Better from what? What what are you
0: standing on? What's bad about it? There's all kinds of questions, and if you remain intellectually honest to an evolutionary idea that has no existence of a God or a creator or a designer, not even a Christian God, then you can't really hold to this and be intellectually honest. To declare that society is getting better or worse for that matter is a religious philosophical statement. And that ventures into discussions that many don't even believe in and say are no longer relevant. Friends, history really is, it's kind of corny, but it is his story. God is authoring what's going on. Sovereign means he's in total control. That's what we're learning about God from Acts chapter 7. History does have a right and wrong side to it. And we do have a part to play in it all. If you want a shorter history lesson than Stephen's, some of you are like, Snuck the cliff notes of a book you're supposed to read. You're like, let me just get the gist of it. Here's the gist of it. Look at Titus chapter 2. I don't think I put this in your notes, but just jot that down. Look at it later. Titus chapter 2, verses 11. Watch this. This is so great. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the past part of history. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the present. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing
1: of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the future. The story of the Bible is that God's
0: in total control of the past, the present, and the future. We can't change the past, but we can study and learn from it. We have a role to play right now. God is teaching you directly, Christian. He's fathering you directly, child of God. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live uh, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Like Stephen, we can know what God is up to in part. Why? Because he's told us. If you went out of here today and someone else was looking at that uh, right side of history title slide, and they didn't hear this message... You could say, well, I, I know what that's talking about. Well, how can you possibly know? Those words could jumble up and say anything, or it could just be a random thing. No, 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 but I know. How do you know? I know the author. I talked to the guy. He told me. He told me what was in his mind when he did that. Friends, that is us in history. Don't pretend we know it all. Don't overreach. We don't know it all. We know very little. God knows it all. But the part he's given to us, we can know because the mind of God has seen fit to reveal certain things to us. Who alone can steer history? Those who are the author of history. That's it. No one else can, can know what's going to happen in the future or predict it accurately. This is a major means, by the way, of proving to us that history is going somewhere and that he alone knows it's going to happen. The Old Testament's full of prophets. We know this, right? Prophets, in part, speak forth words of God about what's going to happen in the future. It's not their only job, but they often will reveal things now of what's going to happen in the future. Do you know that Jesus did this as well? Jesus is the last and great final prophet. John 16, look at this. This is a great passage. Jesus, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these
1: things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Is Stephen fulfilling what Jesus said? Absolutely. He's living it.
0: Jesus says in advance to prove. I've got this. I'm in total control. These things are going to happen. I'm telling you now
1: for a couple of reasons. Don't fall away. Don't run away from this. Know that you're not dying for a lie. And to remember, why are we going through these history lessons? God is
0: teaching us specifics about our day and age. Let me give you a quick second thing that this teaches us. It teaches us not only about God, but Acts chapter 7 teaches us about the servants of God. Number one is this. Servants of God are willing to die for Jesus. It's a really penetrating question, isn't it? What would you bleed for? What are you willing to bleed for? What are you willing to die for? Now, none of us really knows until we're
1: tested. Stephen was tested and he passed. He would die for Jesus. That's who. I have this little book I
0: read in the morning. It's called Five Minute Historian. It's a great little book. It just takes less than five minutes to read this little snippet of history. And in it, a few weeks ago, maybe a week ago, he said this. Actions count for more than words. And martyrdom makes those words ring true forever. Martyrdom makes those words ring true forever. Stephen's example of dying
1: for this solidifies... This little speech that he gives. When death is near, Jesus offers courage, but not necessarily escape. Stephen's willing to die, and God sees fit to let him. That's hard for us, isn't it?
0: It's hard to let someone go. It's hard to wonder why our prayers weren't answered. They were, just not in the way that we saw fit. Look at verse 56. Behold, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus offers courage, not necessarily escape. He reveals himself. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Who does that sound like? It sounds like his Lord and Savior christ is being formed in stephen before our
1: very eyes god's servants are willing to die for him here's number two we're given supernatural knowledge
0: we don't think necessarily that stephen was a scholar on history he's not the local professor of jewish history he was a guy full of the spirit not full of knowledge Stephen is living what Jesus promised. Remember Jesus said this, hey, don't worry about what to say when they drag you before the councils. He might have been thinking in his mind, there's this guy Stephen, it's gonna happen a few weeks from now.
1: Don't worry about what you're gonna say. I'm gonna give you my spirit. You know what the spirit, he, he says, the spirit of truth.
0: So he gives Stephen the spirit of truth. How did he know how to answer them? Simple, he was full of the
1: Holy Spirit. He was yielded but I'm willing to die for you. Number three, servants of God are given supernatural power to forgive. Stephen's obedient to the end, mimics his Lord and Savior.
0: This isn't being widely reported, but the Covenant School in Nashville, a Christian school whose faculty and children were shot up in an act of hate, do you know what they're doing? They have pooled their
1: money to pay for the murderer's uh, funeral. Why? Because they're Christians. That's why. Their Lord and Savior said, Pray for those
0: who persecute you. Love even your enemies. Jesus hung on the cross and said, Don't hold this sin against them. Stephen the martyr said, Lord, uh, they don't know what they're doing. What does he say exactly? Don't hold this sin against them. So what we have is modern day Christians carrying on the history.
1: Same spirit, same power to walk obediently and to forgive. Let me invite the band to come on up. Here's what I'm closing with. How do you have help for making your own history?
0: Two remembers. Remember something big is going on? You know what happens after this event? We're going to get to it. Four chapters worth of persecution and the spread of the gospel. That's what. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I wish it were a different way. I do. I love comfort. But what God's going to do is at this, at this explosive moment, massive persecution happens. And what happens? The Christians go all over the, all over the world. How is this good news going to get outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria?
1: That's how. They're going to be running for their life and preaching life along the way. It's a beautiful picture. You
0: know, in the moment, headlines of this period would have it all wrong. A, the people in power are the ones who would make the headlines. And they would have a clue of what's happening. Which leads me to think about our own headlines. Who's the one writing the headlines on your phone that you scroll through? on your TV, in print. It's still people in power. The headlines they're doing right now, is it filtered through Scripture for you? Is that your authoritative picture or is it something else? Finally, remember that knowing God alters our history. So a beautiful picture. God says He redeems the wasted years how does he do that? Once you meet the author, doesn't your story change? Many people would share their testimony one way, pre-meeting Jesus. Then they meet Jesus and they go, you know, I thought I was doing this. Here's what really was going on. God was with me. He was pursuing me all that way. And somehow he didn't waste it. He redeemed it. We're about to celebrate communion. I leave you with this incredibly powerful verse in Revelation 21.5. Close your eyes and just imagine this. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. God, you are the author of history. We give you praise today because that's fundamentally true. God, let this reality just invade every part of our thinking and living and choices. God, help us to respond appropriately to the one who is authoring our story and thus story we give
1: you praise in Jesus name amen